Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Time for our national town hall meeting with Congressman Mark Pocan. He is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the second district of the state of Wisconsin in the U.S. House of Representatives. His website is Pocan, P-O-C-A-N.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. And Congressman Pocan, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Donald Trump now, he campaigned on nostalgia, right? Let's make America great again. And indeed, he, he's brought back a lot of things. He's brought back the mass deaths from a pandemic from 1918. He's brought back 40% unemployment from the Great Depression in 1929. He's brought back white supremacists like the rise of the Klan and the failure of Reconstruction in the late 19th century. And he's brought back the race riots of the 1960s. I'm wondering, what else do you think he's going to bring back? I mean, are we looking at another world war, a civil war? Is he going to start imitating Pinochet? Or <laughs> what's next? Tiananmen Square? <laughs> yeah, you know, what you just summed up would be really good on a 30-second commercial, right? Uh, you know, yeah. that's uh, the problem. Every time we think Donald Trump can't sink any lower, he proves that we're wrong, and he finds a new way to. Uh, you know, I think this week, the one that really stood out the most for me was, you know, putting tear gas on a peaceful protesters in Lafayette Park simply so he could have a tough guy walk to the church to try to do a photo op with a Bible. I, I just remember the statement when fascism comes to America, they'll be wrapped in a flag and carrying the cross. And in this case, it was a Bible. And, you know, that scene I think really exploded in a bad way for him because I have seen a number of people who are more moderate or conservative, but who are people of faith, really upset that this guy, who clearly doesn't care about the Bible one way or the other, if he walked in that church, he could probably put his finger in the communal water and it would boil. This guy really has exploded on because no one believes that he was sincere, and yet he shows he'll do anything to anyone for a photo op. So to me, that was... Uh, and his continuing uh, trying to use troops when we're trying to deal with police violence, having more violence of that sort isn't going to 
solve anything. So it's been a tough week. And, you know, I think he succeeded in getting COVID off the front page of the paper. But, you know, I'm still dealing with that very intently because this week many small businesses are running out of their PPP loan. This is week eight for them. And because the Senate hasn't come to act, we have nothing to do to help people who are unemployed and small business owners and frontline workers and others. So uh, there's just an awful lot going on. And Donald Trump, unfortunately, is at the center of causing all those problems, like you said. Three quick questions, which may really kind of be just one uh, before we get to, and then we'll pick up our calls for the rest of the hour. Sure. You guys passed a pretty massive piece of legislation to address the economic crisis that's been caused by COVID. It's out of the House. It's over at the Senate. Mitch McConnell, instead, he's keeping the Senate in session so that he can, uh, I think he's up to 189 judges or something like that, so that they can get these judges in. Um, what's up with that and what do you think is going to happen with that, number one? And then number two and three is the Defense Authorization Act, which is required by the Constitution. Every two years we have to decide if we're going to have an army or not. That's happening. And uh, also the Patriot Act reauthorization, I believe, is up. And I'm wondering if I've read news reports, the Progressive Caucus, which you're the, the co-chair of, has some very specific concerns with those two pieces of legislation, particularly when it has to do with uh, police powers, uh, Donald Trump powers and spying powers. What's what's up here? Sure. So first of all, on the Senate, you're right. Uh, they're not addressing COVID or anything else. They're just trying to get more conservative judges in spots, <clears throat> which shows where their priority is and why they're not at the table uh, negotiating with the House Democrats who did pass the HEROES Act, which puts about $3 trillion into the economy to help uh, people who are hurting right now. Specifically on two pieces of legislation you mentioned, uh, we did just actually not pass the FISA reauthorization, the, essentially the allowing government to spy bill, because we had some concerns. We wanted to make it better, and because the Progressive Caucus didn't have, give them votes, uh, they had to hold it up, and it's going to come back at it another time, but we're hoping that they'll make it better rather than worse. On the NDAA, uh, 29 of us, Barbara Lee and I uh, initiated a letter. We were joined by a total of 29 of us who has said that, you know, the $738 billion for defense, which is a 20% increase, Tom, in the last three years at a time of peace, that that should be cut back and money should go to COVID because that's the real common enemy we all have. And I think most people would agree with doing that. So we're still trying to affect that bill if we can, but we do have, I think, some leverage moving forward. So you'll also see some amendments, I think, related to the president's abuse of the military, especially in relates to going against protesters. So there's a lot of action going to be happening. Uh, we're officially back in session June 30th, but I've got the feeling we may be in sooner to address some of the things around race relations right now. We really need to act, I think, in Congress much sooner. Okay, well, let's pick up phone calls here. Lou in Pueblo, sure. Colorado, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I want to bring up an issue. I mean, voting by mail is great and so on, but what we really need to do, I'd like to know if there's anything going on to guarantee the right to vote, because the, the greatest voter suppression of all, to me, is allowing 10 hours every four years to vote for president. We can make it a week, we can do voting by mail, but, but let's guarantee the right to vote. Yeah, Lou, I, I hear you. In fact, I am the author of a, a constitutional amendment that would guarantee the right to vote because unfortunately, what we learned from a number of court cases is there is not an explicit 
right to vote in the Constitution. We certainly talk about discrimination in voting, but there's not an explicit right. And if we had what you're talking about, an explicit right in there, the burden is not on someone saying they've been harmed by their local or state government because of the voting rules. Instead, the, the burden is on that local or state government to prove they haven't harmed the individual's right, constitutional right, to vote. So uh, to me, that is the platinum standard that we still should have. In fact, I believe when you become a citizen, one of the questions is, what's your most important right as an American? And the answer is the right to vote, although technically there is not a constitutional right to vote. But Mitch McConnell and the president right now, they're acting more like despots and dictators these days. We have to build that grassroots case for this. You're right. But what we can try to affect right now in localities and states is making sure we have vote by mail so that everyone can vote. So I still think those efforts are extremely worthy. Do you know of any Republicans who support the right to vote? Or would support um, they'll all tell you they do, but as soon as you get to putting some any language on paper, uh, they don't actually support it. They still want to pick their voters rather than voters picking their elected officials. And it's been a, an age-old problem. Yeah. Morrison, Long Beach, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Congressman, has there been one piece of legislation that the House of Representatives has passed, the Senate has endorsed, and Donald Trump has signed since he's been in office? Thank you, sir. Yeah, I know there have been more, but there's not a lot that are of serious consequence. We have sent over, and I'm going to paraphrase the numbers right now, but I, I want to say it's 400 or so bills, bipartisan bills, um, three-quarters of them that have gone to the Senate that the Senate's just sitting on and not passing. So, you know, really the problem has been in many ways Mitch McConnell and the, the do-nothing Senate, other than passing conservative judges and approving them, they really aren't up for doing much else that you're supposed to as a legislative body, and we haven't had the success that we'd like to. But there have been more inconsequential and, and some maybe bills that you might call consequential, some things you must pass that we've got done, but it's certainly not functioning at all how the Saturday morning, how a bill becomes a law cartoon taught us uh, many years ago. Jessica in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I want to know how Congress can protect the black and Hispanic truck drivers that go to the southern states from being murdered. My friend's brother was murdered in Kentucky on Saturday. He was a truck driver. They took his IDs, they took his wallet, they couldn't identify the body, they stole everything from the truck. My friend's mom got the call Monday night, they're in Kentucky. The evil thing in the White House emboldens racists, and I want to know what can be done to, to get the word out so these blacks and Hispanic truck drivers are safe. Yeah, Jessica, I'm so sorry to hear that story. I, I don't know of it firsthand, but thank you for sharing that. What you said is exactly right. When you have someone in the White House with the world's biggest bully pulpit whose job is to unify people of the nation, and instead he only finds ways to divide them and cause fear and consternation so that he personally can try to benefit politically, he's the worst of the worst, right? And unfortunately right now at a time we really need someone to be the Barack Obama unifier, uh, even you know, Republicans who've done the, these roles in the past, we don't have that. 
in the White House. What I can tell you is we've had calls from the Congressional Progressive Caucus with leadership from the Congressional Black Caucus. We are working on a package of bills the CBC is going to be leading, many already introduced, some that we are introducing, and we want to get action soon on those. We think it's imperative that Congress act. We can do that still remotely with thanks to uh, the, the way we can do proxy voting, but I don't think we can wait till uh, June 30th when we go back. This is something that needs to happen sooner, and uh, there are some concrete measures that will help uh, make sure that we can have better laws in place that protect more people and uh, go after some of the abuses that we've really seen from the police uh, and hopefully stop the president from continuing doing what he's doing. Any specific legislation you'd like to highlight? One we're writing right now is trying to, you know, there's no uniform standard for training of police officers in this country, and there should be. There's a uniform training you need to drive a truck. Uh, I think there should be if you're going to be a cop. Brett in Windsor, Colorado. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Tom, first of all, I want to tell you I'm a longtime listener since the Air America days and brunch with Bernie and all that stuff. Buddy of mine, back in the day after the uh, 2000 election fiasco, good buddy of mine introduced me to your work and sent me uh, uh, We the People, Call to Take Back America. And oh, after yeah. reading that, that great read, uh, I became an instant fan, and I've shared that book with several uh, friends and family over the years. And I think it ought to be required reading for any kind of civic study going on in our country. Tom, back in 2008 or nine, you had Jeff Charlotte on the show, and he wrote the book The Family, something about the family. I, I read that book years ago. And when I saw Trump's stunt with the Bible in front of the church, it, it just brought that book right back for me. And I was wondering with the congressman and you, if you had any insights or thoughts on that. I look at it, Mike Pence's rise to power, and I just can't help but, but uh, continuing to think about Jeff Charlotte's work. My observation from what the president did is, you know, this is a charlatan who believes in nothing but Donald Trump. He worships Donald Trump, and anything he does is for Donald Trump. He's a reality show star who became the president, who decided that this was the photo op he needed at this moment to try to be the law and order president, using those words to really uh, strike a very fearful racist tone to continue to double and triple down for parts of his base. So he gassed group of peaceful protesters uh, so he could take this tough guy walk after you know he hid in the bunker on the Friday before, which seems to bother him. Although personally, I mean, I, I think that's something that any president, it, it might occur, but you know, him, he couldn't take it, his ego. So he did that walk there. And then he did that terrible stunt for a photo op. And, you know, his office called it iconic. I think it's more ironic. I mean, this is a guy who didn't even know how to hold the book, couldn't even answer a question if it was his own Bible. And then I saw an interview recently when he talked about, they asked him about his favorite Bible verses, and he, he just gave a bunch of word scrabble out about it. This guy's a charlatan. But I think this blew up in his face. I have seen multiple sources of moderate to conservative Christians, you know, not folks that are far, far right, evangelicals, but people who just were offended that he's using the Bible as a prop. And I think it really didn't work in the way he intended. And I think that's good because we need the additional allies to do this fight right. It's just, again, disgusting that a president of the United States, instead of unifying people, is continuing to divide people. So, again, every time I think Donald Trump can't go lower, boy, he finds a way to do it. Karen in Tempe, Arizona, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congressman, and, and hi, Tom. Um, I have a question about 
nuclear power and the use by Donald Trump. Let's say Donald loses the next election. I hope so. But anyhow, he's got the time frame from November until January. Do you think that there's a possibility that he would use the bomb? This scares me. This man's crazy. And... I worry about that because that he could get himself away from Washington, hide somewhere, and have have God knows what blown up. Do you think that's a possibility? Do you think he would do that? I am terrified of this man because he's so crazy. And thank you for listening. Thank yeah, you. Karen, I hear you, and, and obviously because this guy is so untrustworthy, you know, you you could put anything next to his name and not be shocked that he would do it. However, uh, as I said before, I think the number one priority for Donald Trump is Donald Trump. And if he thinks that that could affect people staying in his hotels or buying his condos, he's unlikely to do that because Donald Trump is only looking out for Donald Trump. So I'm not directly concerned that that's something that's going to happen. But, you know, I I don't want to say never with this guy on just about anything. I I think we've got to keep a real check on him. And the best way we do that is we've got to make sure he goes down in November. I think he'll scramble those last two months to figure out how to profitize the office. uh, And at least that's less damage than uh, something like you're suggesting, Karen. What are the impediments to his using nuclear weapons? Well, I mean, I I think if he loses at that point, a lot of people are going to realize that, you know, he's no longer dangerous to them electorally and they might stand up and do something. I mean, we've watched a lot of people be very weak-willed for the last year, but I think at that point, you know, it's a good chance the Senate goes down with him and there may be whoever's going to try to rebuild the party, I think, react. So that's my hope anyway. Well, that's that's an optimistic perspective and a good one. That's great. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Mark in Sauk City, Wisconsin. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Interested to hear if the Congress is going to do anything about Matt Gates's recent comments about just shooting people. And also you brought up voting rights, you know, just being, you know, that there's not enough there. I mean, there's nothing in the, I've mentioned this to Tom before, that there's nothing in the Constitution, you know, according to Hamilton in, in 81, Federalist 81, that there's nothing in the Constitution that empowers the Supreme Court to have jurisdiction over our laws. I mean, to make decisions over our laws, and it's just a, a right they seized upon themselves for themselves. I mean, and there's enough in the 15th, I guess, 19th and 24th, and also the amendment for the voting rights for 18-year-olds in the Constitution should, that should actually provide the structure for that we actually do have the right to vote under the Constitution. Yeah, so, Mark, on the first one, uh, you know, unfortunately, Matt Gates uh, loves to do sensational things just so that the cameras come to him. I, I followed him outside one time after voting, and uh, TMZ came up in his face and asked him something about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and he just said, I won't, well, I won't sweep, swipe left. And after the camera walked away, I said, did you really think you're going to do that today? And he's like, that's what I do. That's who I am. So, mm-hmm. unfortunately... Yeah, his comments will will go by. I think like other things he's done have gone by, and uh, it's just unfortunate that people like that are such sycophants to the president that they'll do and say anything. Um, and unfortunately, they get reelected. Uh, we're, the right to vote stuff. We've done a lot of work on this, and it really came out of some Bush v. Gore stuff that it came out that there is not an explicit right to vote. So we worked with the voting rights groups and some of the other good democracy groups around us introduced it, I think, first three sessions ago. I could be wrong, maybe four. But there actually is a need to have an explicit right if you want to switch the burden from individuals proving they're harmed to the government proving they can't harm anyone. It really would be the gold or the platinum standard you need. But we do need to do that to, to really make it much easier than have this whack-a-mole fight we have right now state by state on voting. Ted in Milton, New York. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. My question for Representative Pocan, I contacted my representative to ask if he would be willing to submit articles of impeachment against the president. I'm just calling to ask, you know, to take your temperature on that. You did support Honestly, somebody else didn't. I don't think going to go anywhere, right? I mean, we saw the Senate. It took a long time to put the case together last time to do the impeachment trial. We did impeach him. He's already impeached. Uh, the problem is the Senate went through the removal. So I don't know if that's really the 
the most useful thing we could do with our time, but I do think checks on his power and not allowing him to get away with what he's doing with the military and those issues are things we absolutely should be doing. In the House, we're not technically back in until June 30th. I personally think we should have a special session to deal with legislation around um, race relations in this country. I, I think we need to act sooner and faster, but that's just my preference. Mary in Waterloo, Iowa, you're on the Earth Congressman Pocan. I would like to see, like you sent out the $1,200 checks, I would to up to $60,000 income. I would like to see a food stamp similar program to all people, for instance, lower than 40000 More farm goods be getting to the stores, and people would have more of a variety. Plus, you would have this, people would have this extra income if they got a small income. So I, I think giving food stamps would be a much better way of distributing food to the people than all these lines that we are seeing for the food bank. Also, they'd be getting more fruits and vegetables. When you go to a food bank, you are not, you don't know what you're getting. And these children need a steady diet. And I think food stamps under 40000 to every person would really increase money in pockets of the poor people and get a better supply of food to the people. I hear you, Mary. You know, unfortunately, one of the things the Republicans really fight, and I don't understand why, is food stamps. We know that the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP program, which is commonly known by as food stamps, uh, is one of the best ways to keep children out of poverty. And yet, you know, the real dollars amount, not even the adjusted for inflation, real dollar amount is less now than when I came into Congress um, per week per person. So uh, we've had, unfortunately, enormous fights on getting that done. You know, I, right now, I know we're concerned that some of the buying uh, food from farms, um, including areas like Waterloo and my area in South East, or I'm sorry, South Central and Southwestern Western Wisconsin, um, is, is not uh, buying as much as we would hope and distributing as much as we would hope because there's also a lot of surplus, as you know, out there, and we would like to get that, those goods out. So uh, not saying your idea is not a valid one. I just think, unfortunately, given the, the experience of that, that program over the last seven years, seven and a half years I've been in Congress, uh, I don't think the Republicans are likely to do much that's unfortunately good in an area that really reduces poverty more than almost any program. David in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I recently heard about a uh, bill introduced by a congressman from uh, Hawaii that would uh, restrict military weapons, not, uh, take them out of the hands of the police. I don't think the police uh, should be overly armed. They, they should be more working with the community rather than strapping on all this armor and all this other junk. Well, have you supported that bill? Yeah, actually, Hank Johnson has a bill. He's out of Georgia. I'm not sure. Either. I'm guessing right now multiple people will introduce stuff, but Hank Johnson has traditionally had a bill, and I voted for that in the past when we've had it as amendments for the NDAA, et cetera. Um, so, uh, yeah, I am supportive of that effort. Uh, I don't think you know necessarily drafting a dozen new bills is, is helpful, although a lot of people just like to do it to say they're doing something. But Hank Johnson has already done the work on that, and he was on our Progressive Caucus call. He's our member um, and talked about it a little bit for our membership yesterday. Les in Tacoma, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, with the history and continued enforcement of the mental illness of white supremacy that is supported through the use of police brutality so evident in the protests across our nation, 
is hindering the progress in our nation. I'm a black man because of the construct of whiteness. We must educate our young people of how the systematic racism stacked the deck to populate this country with the supermajority of Europeans. So my question is, what accountability can Congress, the Senate, and judicial, the judicial branch of government take in dismantling the construct of whiteness that is hindering the progress of our nation? Yeah, Les, so it's it's funny. One, I mean, we know the CBC is putting a, a group of bills together, as is Judiciary Committee. We've put a call out for the Progressive Caucus. I'm actually in the middle of texting right now with my co-chair on uh, some of these issues. You know, there's going to be a number of bills, I think, that will help the problem is we're going to face the Senate we have and the president we have, but we're going to pass them. And we're not back in session technically till June 30th. I think we should be in in a week or two, uh, have a week for committee process and, and get this done. I think waiting till June 30th is a mistake. And I think we should be moving a little quicker on legislation. But there are a number of bills that are moving forward that are going to help, I think, um, level the playing field, help put some greater restrictions on the police abuses that we've seen. But is it going to end the systematic racism? Probably not, but it certainly is something that we can do legislatively to start uh, moving in that right direction. Any specific legislation that stands out to you, or do you want to give us a, a short list of what people are proposing? I think it's going to be released as early as today by Judiciary Committee and tomorrow by the CBC, and we've We've kind of decided that we want them to announce what they're putting together, but it's a lot of pieces that have already been introduced from uh, legislation by Sheila Jackson Lee, Barbara Lee, um, Hank Johnson. Uh, you know, we went through a bunch of the bills in the Progressive Caucus yesterday. I think, though, I want to, out of respect, wait for this package to be introduced because we want CBC to take the lead on doing that. By CBC, and I you believe mean the Congressional it's Black Caucus? Yes, the Black Caucus, correct. And Karen Bass, who's the chair, was on our call yesterday. Tom in Kingston, Washington. Tom, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I'd like to address the problem of the police who do falsified reports, which get you arrested and put in jail. And under high bails, sometimes you spend up to a month in jail, and then when you hire a lawyer, you get into the court and find out they really had no evidence to arrest you. Redmond, Washington is one of the court systems that use this quite frequently. Tom, I think one of the things that's been talked about, and I believe my state in Wisconsin still doesn't allow bail bondsmen, um, because you're right, all too often that's been used as a way just to hold people without um, any merit. In Wisconsin, we had an effort when I was in the legislature, probably going back 15 years ago now, where they brought someone in who wanted to have us bring back bail. And when we asked, you know, where the person was from who was presenting, it turned out it was Alec bringing some company from California that wanted to come in and profitize off of it, uh, trying to change our laws, which actually worked pretty well not having bail bondsmen because uh, that is part of the problem, as you just uh, put out there. So, you know, that's one approach to dealing with it, um, making sure that uh, people aren't just being held uh, because they don't have the resources. We need to do lots, though. Um, you know, my biggest issue I think I look at right now in policing is you should, no matter where you go in the country, you should be having an officer who's got the same amount of training. Um, and where there is no standard nationally. And I think that's wrong. You should be treated the same whether you're in Georgia or Wisconsin or California. If you confront a law enforcement officer, they should have a common set of training, just like truck drivers have a common set of training uh, across the country. And, and I think that's something we're working on right now because I think that would also help. 
My understanding is that part of the history of cash bail has to do with protecting rich people. I mean, basically, if you've got a, a hundred million bucks in the bank, there is no bail that is consequential or meaningful to you. What do you think about this movement we're seeing uh, largely state by state to eliminate cash bail altogether? Yeah, Wisconsin is one of those states, again, that was very fortunate. We got rid of it a long time ago because of corruption oh, in really? the system back, I think, in the 70s. So, you know, when they tried to bring it back when I was in the legislature 15 years ago, we didn't do it, of course. But it was interesting. No one in the state was asking for it. It wasn't law enforcement asking for it. It was a company, a vendor out of California who wanted to profitize off of it. And that was it. So the idea ended pretty quick. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think those efforts are strong and valid. So when you say uh, you did away with bail bondsmen, I thought you meant you just outlawed that particular business. You actually did away with cash bail. What do you think about doing that federally? I think, again, that actually, is, we have 20 is a seconds. barrier. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I think, again, that's something that we definitely should be looking at. There's a lot of things. I mean, again, there's no one bill or one answer to the questions that are out there. That's why I think, you know, one of my approaches has been let's just make sure everyone's got the same amount of training across the country so that you have when you're a police officer, it means a definition rather than what currently um, it can mean anything, depending where you encounter an officer. Henderson, Nevada, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Talk about irony. Uh, to provide a photo op at the expense of our Constitution, our Attorney General and President used unlawful force and tear gas against peaceful protesters to grab a photo op in front of a church holding up a holy Christian Bible. The irony is that the Bible he was holding inside says adulterers like himself, after paying off a porn star, should be uh, put to death, calls it a sin to lie which is his daily rhetoric, calls it a sin to bear false witness, urges people to love their neighbor, and says, thou shalt not kill. Well, being that he used the attorney general in the force yesterday, how can we protect our constitutional right to free speech and assembly and hold the president and the attorney general accountable? So first of all, I don't think he succeeded in what he, he did. He never should have did uh, what he did in order to do that photo op. And I think uh, the pushback has been very negative for him. I mean, it's cost him, I think, a lot. He made a serious miscalculation. But now you've got the Secretary of Defense saying that we shouldn't be using military personnel in that way. And I think he's going to see some other pushback uh, on that as well. And that's good because uh, that means people at least are thinking on their own a little uh, about this issue. So, um, you know, we're I, I think we need to be prepared as well as we pass the National Defense Authorization and other bills to make it very explicit that the president doesn't have some of these powers. Uh, but right now, I was very glad to see Secretary of Defense say that because I think that will provide some of the pushback that we need. Laura in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. You know, I can't help but think that this, some of the looting and lawlessness over the last couple of days is in direct relationship to the shutting down of the economy and not giving anybody work or enough money to survive. It's really, I think, one of the stimulating factors behind a lot of the lawlessness. But I wanted to ask you what you thought about, um, you were talking about a uniform training. I really believe that the uh, police should be a profession. They should be required to have a four-year degree, and they should be licensed with continuing education requirements and uh, to hold their own liability, to carry their own liability. 
And this would stop the kind of military to police force pipeline. They would have to go to college before they went into the police force because I think that is a major problem with some of our really, really aggressive um, cops. What do you think? She's describing the European yeah, I'm, I'm open to all sorts of suggestions on this, right? I don't know if necessarily a four-year degree is what's required, but I do think adequate training ac- across the board, no matter where you are in the country, the law enforcement officer should have the same competent uh, training. Uh, right now, the average is 12 to 14 weeks of police academy, but a lot of jurisdictions don't have that. In fact, we're having a hard time getting what the requirements are, and that alone is a problem uh, in finding across the board. So I think that and some standards of what they're learning and what's being taught should also be put in there so we can have a little more control over it. But I'm not saying it it just goes to the case of George Floyd, but to many of these cases, not having the proper training, I think, has come up over and over and over. And that's why it's just really, I thought about this for years, why, you know, a truck driver has to have a common set of knowledge and common test in order to drive a big rig to Yeah, and a license. Congressman, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great talking with you again. Of course, Tom. Thank you. Take care. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. But what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are, too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. 
After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. And on the line with us is Congressman Ro Khanna, a regular on our program. Typically, he's taking your phone calls, but I wanted to have a conversation with him and get into some depth here over the course of the next 30 minutes. Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov is his website. His Twitter handle is Rep Ro Khanna, as in representative. He is a he is a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. He represents uh, the uh, Silicon Valley area of California. He's also the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus the 17th District of California, I should have mentioned. And Congressman Khanna, welcome back, and thanks so much for being with us. I'm wondering if, first of all, there are any kind of general comments before I get into some specific questions and and conversation with you that you'd like to make about this day and this moment in our history. Well, it's such a uh, challenging moment for the nation, reminding us of how far we still have to go in terms of racial equality. I was rereading some of Dr. King's uh, speeches, and you could literally have the exact same speech given today, where he talked about his opposition to rioting, but said uh, that really wasn't the issue. The question was, why are people rioting? And that the only way to uh, have some sense of unity is not by having an accommodation to injustice, but by uh, tackling the underlying injustices. And, you know, of course, the philosopher Charles Taylor has said that uh, when you have a history of 250-plus years of slavery, then 100 years following that of Jim Crow, it's ingrained in the psyche of the country has been black people as less than. And the idea that after 50 years of a civil rights movement, we would change that fundamental mentality, obviously that has not been the case. And so it's a very deep cultural issue of how we overcome something that has been ingrained for so many years in the American psyche. I'm wondering if you are comfortable speaking about your experience as a minority in America. Sure. I mean, first, let me say this. Growing up Indian American in Bucks County, Pennsylvania is very different than growing up black in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And so I think we have to be speaking bluntly or truthfully in this moment that being a person of color is very different than being a black person. The Indian American experience is certainly one of challenge. I mean, my grandfather, as you know, spent four years in jail with Gandhi's independence movement. And in the 1920s, there was a famous case, the Singh case, where the Indian, an Indian uh, person of Indian origin was not considered eligible to be a citizen of this country. But it has not been the same systematic view of inferiority that has been at the very founding of our country and and the black experience. And so were there times growing up that I was told, you know, you should go back to India, or were there times that uh, I was outside a gas station and I had a cop car pull up because I was pacing? Uh, Yes. But by and large, I had the, the good fortune of having teachers who believed in me, neighbors who believed in me, a community, even though it was relatively almost all white, that allowed me to believe in in my dreams. But you look at what I had. I had a good public school. I lived in a safe neighborhood. I Yet the incidents of racism were isolated and not the norm. And you compare that on the flip side to many uh, African-American experiences. For them, the incidences of discrimination, of inferiority, uh, are too pervasive. It is part of their 
their their their life. It's not the exception. Uh, and then when we talk about Black Lives Matter, it's not just police violence, but it's the lack of a, of fair education, of fair health care, of all of the opportunities that this country gave gave me. So uh, it certainly being a person of color gives me a sense of uh, the difficulty of becoming a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy, but it in no way compares to the struggle and suffering of the of the black experience. A multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy, small d democracy, is something that is, as far as I know, in the in the large arc of history, uh, pretty unique. I mean, you know, Roman citizens, occasionally people who were not Italian were given Roman citizenship, but it was very, very rare. It was a huge reward for something. Um, you know, the Greeks, uh, both Romans and Greeks were slaveholders. Um, the Greeks took people. In some cases, they were people who were uh, European, but nonetheless, they were not Greeks and held them as slaves. Um, but uh, most of your European countries, at least initially, uh, were largely ethnically, racially uh, homogenous or heterogeneous, rather. I, I always mix those words up. I'm sorry. <laughs> Correct me, and and, I, and I'm and, I, and I'm and I'm wondering. You know, it, it, this was laid out. In fact, there's a, a, a brilliant uh, a brilliant new book out. It's called. Uh, in fact, I have it right here on my bookshelf. It's by Bradley Thompson, and it's called Americans Revolu- America's Revolutionary Mind. I just read this about a month ago, and it just blew my mind. And and it's it, it was about how uh, right up until around 1810, 1820. The founding generation was a generation of just crazed idealists, you know, like the hippies of the 70s, 60s, um, who actually did think that they could end slavery within two generations and actually did think that there could be a pluralistic society. It might be a segregated one as geographically, you know, James Monroe famously, you know, uh, exported people to Africa and created Liberia and all that kind of stuff. But there was this idea that possibly we could all live together. That kind of got blown up when the, when the cotton gin was invented and the value of, uh, of an right. individual held in bondage exploded and, and the oligarchy evolved in the South. Um, but this is something in the United States that I don't think any other country has successfully done. Am I, am I missing something? And, and, and what are your thoughts on that and how we move forward and, and, and to what extent we offer an example to the world, particularly as many of these other countries, these, these European historically all white countries have been bringing people in from, from Germany in the 50s, you know, with the gastarbeiters, the, the uh, Turks, um, who have now become somewhat integrated into German society, um, you know, to the Syrian refugees and whatnot who are coming into other countries. Your thoughts? That's a very profound question, and I think that, of course, is the promise of, of our uh, experiment, that uh, you, you could have uh, a nation with a common culture, uh, the common culture being what Lincoln called the political religion of the, the, the country, that our common culture is the uh, affirmation of our democratic ideals, that everyone can uh, pursue their dreams, their happiness, regardless of uh, their creed, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless uh, of their race. Uh, and I would argue that there are two separate challenges. The one is a challenge of increasing diversity. So for the first time post 
65 immigration, uh, we have people of very different faith. I mean, I'm of Hindu faith, and uh, it's not just, uh, as majority Christian and, and Jewish. And we have people not uh, just of European heritage, but from uh, other parts, many other parts of the world, and parts of the world that were subject to, to colonialism, as India was. So that has made the uh, challenge of common culture and where where you have common culture uh, a, a difficult challenge. And you can't just say, well, let's embrace a common political culture, uh, but we don't really need a common uh, American culture, because if you don't have uh, some American, common American culture, you're made other, you're marginalized, your voice, you don't get elected, you don't have get taken seriously at a town hall. And so part of the challenge in the country is this uh, figuring out how to tolerate dissent and subcultures and letting people be proud of who they are, but having a sufficient common glue uh, that we can have conversation and have a common framework. That's one challenge. Uh, Wholly apart from that is, I think, even a deeper challenge, and that is the issue of race, that uh, we had this uh, original sin of people bringing people in bondage, and for so many generations, they the, the way the African American community has been treated has been one of uh, consciously and, and subconsciously uh, thinking of them as less than. And so then the question becomes: How do you move forward, uh, not just in having a common American culture, but in recognizing the historical injustices and uh, having some redress for that? And I, I think if we can, you know, make progress on both of these issues, we do have this possibility of emerging as one of the, the first multiracial, multiethnic democracies uh, in the world. And that, in my view, would be America's greatest contribution to human civilization. But the, the, the events of these last couple of weeks have shown how far we still have to go. Yeah, and it seems to be stretching to the top. Are you hopeful that that the Republican Party can step back from the edge of their embrace of racism? I don't know. I'm having a conversation with Mike Gallagher tonight from Wisconsin, a reasonable Republican, and and on Instagram, and I'm going to talk about something, see where he is on these issues of police violence and where he is on the issues of race, but uh, not under the Trump party. I mean, this, and, uh, you know, Trump is going to take this uh, 2020 into the gutter in right. worse than Nixon. I think you're absolutely right that Reagan used these dog whistles, and certainly Bush Sr. did, and, and, and Nixon did even more explicitly. But you always got a sense of them that this was something that they were ashamed of doing. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't do it, and they were willing to do it to, to gain power. Uh, but they would have their Lee Atwater do it and, and keep their hands uh, clean because they wanted to project the book to themselves and to the country in the sense that they were above these prejudices. Of course, they had to hire the dirty folks, to, the operators to do the dirty work, and that was the cost of democracy. The difference with Trump is that there is no sense of shame. There is no filter. There is no uh, the sense that this is something uh, bad. And I, I do think that that's a qualitative difference. Do you think that that's the result of the way he was raised? I mean, his father was arrested at a Klan riot in the 1920s. Uh, his first job working for his dad was uh, writing the letter C on the applications uh, for rental in the low-income housing units that his father owned, uh, C indicating colored for, you know, uh, so that they could filter out uh, black people and other people of color? Do you think that this is just like baked into him and he hasn't I, I, I literally has not awakened? Part, yeah, I think it's partly how he was raised. And, and 
in in his sense that this is uh, the order of America that he uh, believes in. I mean, when he talks about going back to the 50s and 60s, it's not just about bringing back manufacturing. It's about going back to that social order uh, that he was he was raised. But I think the other difference is uh, while uh, Reagan and Bush and Nixon uh, appealed to these types of tactics to divide people and uh, play to their fears of the division that could be caused in society or the insurrection that could be caused in society, uh, I think Trump is for the really first time playing the the idea of the of of white people as victims, as aggrieved, as as having lost something. And uh, I, I think that's actually his worldview, that he feels that they have lost uh, their place and they're, they're fighting for that place. And that's why, uh, as, as, as terrible as it is, that's why for 40%, 45% of his base, there is a, uh, they see him as uh, authentic in that view. So Nixon, you know, in his shout out to the silent majority, he, he basically meant, you know, white, white people. Um, Nixon was willing to use that sense of victimhood and exploit it, but he probably personally didn't experience it. Um, but you, you think that Trump actually does believe this? Is that, is that, am I, I correctly believes, rephrasing I what believes, you're saying? I think he believes that there's a sense of loss of uh, the, the, the average American and, and many white Americans place in uh, the, the country and place in the world. And he's fighting to, to redeem that place. Uh, and it's a loss of privilege, that, right? He, yeah, and, and in do, doing that, he's got total blinders to the, 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 the loss uh, is, uh, of, of communities which really have faced oppression, racism, subjugation. Let me give you a very concrete example. Uh, why is it that suddenly when we talk about broadband, which I'm a big believer in, we've got to give everyone access to the Internet, suddenly it's a big issue with, with rural communities, rural white communities, but we black communities have been denied the, the Internet access for so many years and no one was talking about it. I'm writing this series of books called the Hidden History Series. That we have a contract to write 10 of them over a five-year period. And the one I'm writing right now, which will be out in the fall of next year, is the Hidden History of Healthcare in the United States. And I'm doing this deep, deep dive into it. And what I'm finding is that every single time single-payer health care has been defeated in the United States, and it's been proposed numerous times going all the way back to the late 1800s um, by very credible and serious people, including new, several presidents of the United States. Every time it's been defeated, it's been defeated by Southerners. It was Southern Democrats pre-1960 um, because they didn't want black people to have access to hospitals. They wanted to maintain segregation. It, it, it literally the main, the only reason why we don't have a national health care system, probably 80 percent of the reason why we don't, is because of white racism in the United States. Um, you were speaking about something similar to this with regard to broadband. You want to tell us about that? I echo your point, and the point on on broadband is that we have ignored black communities and brown communities that have had non-access to the internet. Suddenly when we've seen that this is an issue in worldwide communities, it's come to the surface. The same thing you could say about jobs, right? I mean, William Julius Wilson was writing in the 1990s that the breakdown of many of the uh, African-American communities uh, was not about uh, family breakdown or other breakdown. It was jobs. That, 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 that when we had, when jobs left, 
communities broke down. And people didn't really take that seriously. And then suddenly when uh, we had the loss of jobs in uh, rural white communities, people suddenly said, oh, yeah, we have to take this really seriously. And this, in some ways, is Tanezi Coates' point that the uh, what is acceptable for minority communities is different than what is acceptable for white communities. And it's partly when people toss around this view of systemic racism, uh, it can be vague. And, and you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that we have a different belief, a different expectation uh, for different communities based on race. And we should understand why that is. It's not to cast blame, but how could you not have psyches affected when you've had hundreds of years of slavery and Jim Crow? It's, it's, it's normal for people to have conscious and unconscious bias. Uh, what we have to all do is recognize that and be intentional in solving it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Back to the idea of multiracial democracies. I think that the only two countries that have uh, that are really aggressively taking this on or facing this as a challenge, shall we say, are South Africa and the United States. And South Africa arguably is where the United States was. I, I don't mean literally politically where they were, but in terms of time back in the Reconstruction era. I mean, you know, it's just it, it's been very, very recently. Ronald Reagan supported apartheid in South Africa. The Republican Party's more or less official position was in support of apartheid in, in, in the, uh, you know, right up through the, through the 80s. South Africa is struggling with that now. We're struggling with this. You could say that it ended in the United States, you know, with the Civil War, but I would say that it really, you know, legal segregation ended in the 60s. How do we advance this? It seems to me that the core meme that works against pluralistic democracies is the meme that was adopted by white racists in both the United States and South Africa, that diversity equals weakness. And that if we can figure out a way to replace that meme right across the board, where it's embraced even by white people, that diversity equals strength in society, that's a good starting point. Do you have others? What are your thoughts on all that? The first thing we have to do is recognize the historical injustices and be intentional in redress and reparations to make up for those historical injustices. And I think without that, you can't start to have a conversation about uh, how you have equality of, of citizenship. And then the second thing we have to do is, is to, to have honest conversations about the need for a common American political culture, but also the need to represent identity and be proud of that identity. So for me, on a personal basis, it means uh, I didn't have a problem or our family didn't have a problem putting out Christmas lights when others did on our, our neighborhood, but I've been very proud of my Hindu faith and would never compromise that in running for political office. That's my balance. Others may have had a different balance. And the point is, how do we have those conversations honestly and recognize different people may have different lines and where we have common American ground. And so I think that these are the, the challenges for our, our country. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Congressman Ro Khanna, the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus representing the 17th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives. Congressman, thank you so much for dropping by and talking with me about this today. Thank you. Thank you. It's great talking to you, as always. Let's uh, continue this conversation generally speaking on whatever's on your mind, but also specifically to the extent possible, and I will prioritize calls that have to do with the issues of policing and race in the United States. We are facing a real serious crisis here. Cassandra in uh, Camas, Washington. Hey, Cassandra, what's on your mind today? 
I just have a comment to make concerning the anti-lynching bill that is being held up at the present moment by we all know who in the Senate. Um, Senator Rand Paul, for anybody who yeah. wasn't listening yesterday, yes. Yeah. It isn't a given, and I think we need to wake up to this fact as white people in America, all of us that are, that the reason why it is being held up is that it is an automatic assumption that lynching is only about black people, Hispanic people, people of color. No one expects white people to be lynched. It's just a given. So that means that you are holding up a bill that has to do with protecting people of color because no one expects lynching to even remotely revolve around white people. And these police forces have been given carte blanche to go out and lynch people at this point. And they're not going out and lynching white people. They are lynching people of color. And the sad thing to me about this is that I have a nephew who is on the police force, has been for a few years, and he did the typical route that most of our police, 99% of our police take, which is straight out of the military into the police force, which means you're taking people who have been told to fight for their country in a foreign land or whatever, and in the moment, of course, last 20 odd years, it's in a foreign countries, and not to protect us here on our own soil, but somewhere else. And here's your opponent. And now we bring you home and we have to, we don't decompress you. We just send you right back out and you need an opponent. Who's the opponent? It is the American people now. And more precisely, it is the people who live within America of color that they are now being told, here, vent all your anger, vent all your frustration, your PTSD, vent it on the people that are your fellow Americans. And the sad part to me is that these people are being manipulated. These police, these military are being manipulated and used just as much. And they cannot see this. They are being used as much as anyone who is being afflicted in this country. And someday they're going to turn around and realize that someone they've maced, someone they have stunned with the bullets, uh, the rubber bullets, they're going to realize that was a family member, that was a friend. So the people you profess to love, you are now harming. Just because they don't know them, these, these men in Minneapolis who, you know, they didn't even live in the area, they lived outside. So yes, you have no connection to these people there. But what happens when it is your own people that you know? Well, you are hurting someone's son, someone's mother, someone's brother, someone's grandfather pushed down on it, you know, and he's left there to bleed on the on the cement. This is disgusting. And we have to wake the police and the military up to the fact that you are harming your own people, whatever the color of their skin. You're harming everyone, including yourself. Absolutely. And you're losing your soul in the process. Cassandra, thank you. Very eloquent. Very eloquent. And let me let me just add to that. Number one, in basically every war we've had since since the end of World War Two, you know, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the, the various uh, military incursions in Central and South America, the uh, the, the Vietnam War, uh, the Iraq War, the Afghan War, the, you know, Libya, you, you name it. We are training our military, particularly the white military who transition into the white police forces around the country, we are training them to kill people who look different from them. And there's a long tradition of this outside the military, inside policing. In the United States, up until the middle of the 1800s, 
many communities in the United States, arguably most communities in the United States, did not have formal police departments. There would be somebody who was deputized as a sheriff. It was a part-time job. It was sort of like being a member of the volunteer fire department. The whole formal policing thing largely was not happening in what we called police. It was happening in the, in the northern states. It was simply happening as I just described. In the southern states, it was happening as something called the slave patrols. And you know, I, I wrote an entire book about this, The Hidden History of, the, of Guns in the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment was passed specifically to protect the slave patrols in Virginia, Georgia, the Carolinas, Alabama. That's why it's there. And our modern-day policing in the United States uniquely grew out of the slave patrols. That's why policing is so different in Canada. We joke about Dudley Do-Right and the Mounties. They're respectful to people. Why policing is so different in Europe. They didn't have the slave patrols. We still do. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 